So here's Joshua on the edge of the land uh, with the people of God about to take possession of the promised land, experiencing God's presence, we could say God's blessing. Under Joshua's leadership now, the Israelites are going to go into the land of Canaan and they go in and they start to wipe out all the inhabitants uh, in the land and take possession of it. And as they progress through the land itself, the actions of Joshua and the people are not a victory that they can claim for themselves. They're a group of sandal-wearing trumpet blowers shaking animal bones. Uh, They aren't exactly a scary uh, rabble of people. But Yahweh, the covenant God, is with them. So think of uh, Jericho and the walls coming down in Jericho. Who Who caused the walls to be pulverized? Was it the trumpeters blowing away? Was it the singers uh, shouting out? No, of course not. The walls of this huge fortified city came collapsing down because of God. Look at Joshua chapter 5 with me and verse 13. Now when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand, ready for battle. Joshua went up to him and asked, Are you for us or for our enemies? Neither, he replied. But as commander of the army of the Lord, I've now come. Then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, What message does, the Lord, does, does my Lord have for his servant? The commander of the Lord's army replied, Take off your sandals, for the place where you're standing is, is holy. And Joshua did so. Uh, and then if we come down to... Um, Actually, let's just keep, keep reading. Now, Jericho was tightly shut up because of the Israelites. No one went out and no one came in. Then the Lord said to Joshua, See, I've delivered Jericho into your hands, along with its king and its fighting men. March around the city once with all the armed men. Do this for six days. Make seven priests carry trumpets of ram's horns in front of the ark. On the seventh day, march around the city seven times with the priests blowing their trumpets. When you hear them sound a long blast on the trumpets, make all the people give a loud shout, then the walls of the city will collapse and the people will go up, every man straight in. Who gave the victory? It's God. God was the one who was victorious. I don't know how this story actually makes you feel or even the whole book of Joshua as you recall it. Look at verse 21 of chapter 6. They devoted the city to the Lord and destroyed with the sword every living thing in it, men and women, young and old, cattle, sheep, and donkeys. It sounds like ethnic cleansing, doesn't it? It sounds awful. Why would a loving God do this? Well, Moses gave the reason as to why this ought to be done. Flick back with me to Deuteronomy chapter 9. Deuteronomy 9 and verse 1. Page 188. Why is God going to do this? Deuteronomy 9 verse 1. Hear, O Israel, you are now about to cross the Jordan to go in and dispossess nations greater and stronger than you with large cities that have walls up to the sky. Down to verse 4. After the Lord your God has driven them out before you, do not say to yourselves, the Lord has brought me here to take possession of 
this land because of my righteousness. No, it is on account of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is going to drive them out before you. It is not because of your righteousness or your integrity that you're going in to take possession of their land, but on account of the wickedness of these nations. The Lord your God will drive them out before you to accomplish what he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God remembering his covenant. Why is God going to do this? Because God is a righteous God. And because God is faithful to his promises. He's a God who keeps his word. Secondly, because the Canaanites were a wicked, wicked people. They skinned people alive. They brutalized children. They offered child sacrifices to false gods by throwing their own children into fire pits. They practiced magic, sorcery, the occult. There was immorality, and then there was some. There was the Canaanites. For the parents here tonight, these weren't the kind of folks you'd want your kids knocking about with. Uh, And God knew that if his children, if his people were to hang out with this lot, well, then they'd be corrupted uh, and they would adopt some of their detestable practices too. And so God acts in judgment. God is a just judge and he's pouring out his judgment upon the wickedness and the abomination of these Canaanites. And God's people, actually, they fail to obey God's command, to wipe out all these people. Actually, they leave some alive. And they're lurking in the shadows like an unwanted dose of athlete's foot that you can never get rid of are these Canaanites. And they're a corrupting influence for many years. So alongside these wonderful promises that God's made to his people, there's an undercurrent actually that things aren't quite as rosy as we'd like them to be, as we might hope. But broadly speaking, the whole book of Joshua sees progress of the covenant. Flick on a couple of pages to Joshua 11 and verse 23. Page 227. Joshua 11, verse 23. So Joshua took the entire land, just as the Lord had directed Moses. And he gave it as an inheritance to Israel, according to their tribal divisions, Then the land had rest from war. It's interesting, that word rest, isn't it? And um, if we kind of flick on forward to Joshua chapter 21. uh, I think this might be in your handouts. Uh, Joshua 21 and verse 43. The book ends really on quite a high, high note. Joshua 21, 43. So the Lord gave Israel all the land he had sworn to give their forefathers, and they took possession of it and settled there. The Lord gave, gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their forefathers. Not one of their enemies withstood them. The Lord handed all their enemies over to them. Not one of the Lord's good promises to the house of Israel failed. Every one was fulfilled. God's people, the Israelites, are in God's place. They're in Cana. And they're experiencing God's blessing and rest from his enemies. It all looks very good. And Joshua has this kind of final word, um, a word really of caution for his people at the end of the book. Uh, Joshua 23 and verse 11. 
Uh, actually, verse 12. Uh, but if you turn away and ally yourselves with the survivors of the, these nations that remain among you, and if you intermarry with them and associate with them, then you may be sure that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you. Instead, they'll become snares and traps for you. Whips on your backs, thorns in your eyes, until you perish from this land which the Lord your God has given you. That doesn't sound good at all. So the question we're left with at the end of Joshua is, will the people obey God? Will they be faithful to Yahweh? And will they remain in the land? Now before the Israelites entered the land, God had planned that his people uh, would be governed by a king. I do want to just quickly turn there. Flick back to Deuteronomy chapter 17. And uh, Deuteronomy 17. Um, if you ever listen to this on the recording, just pause it and have a read through this section yourself. Uh, we're going to look at 17, 14 to 20. But I'm just going to briefly take us through this little section. Uh, this king was not to be an authority separate from God. It was the king that God had appointed and chosen uh, over his people. We see that in 17 verse 15. This king would rule under God in submission to God and his law. We see that in verse 18. But there's some conditions for this king. What's he going to be like? Well, he's not to be a foreigner, verse 15c. He's not to take many horses, verse 16a. He's not to take many wives, verse 17a. He's not to accumulate much silver and gold, uh, verse 17b. He's to read the word of the law every day, verse 19. And he's to follow the teaching, verse 19b. So question, how will God's people in God's place experience God's blessing and God's rule? Answer, through God's king. So now as we move into Judges, and turn with me to the start of Judges, page 242 uh, in your Bible, um, we now consider this next book, which on one level is actually rather depressing. Um, there's a recurring theme that seems to happen uh, throughout this book. There's a problem for um, life now in the land. There's a problem which actually being in the land itself doesn't solve. The people fail to listen to Moses and they fail to listen to Joshua. They're rebellious and they're stiff-necked and they rebel against God. Let me give you another slide. Um, oh, I forgot to give you this. Um, here we are. We're in, we're in the book of Judges. Uh, I think you might have this in your handout as well. So there's this cycle that we start to see. In fact, let's, let's look at an example in um, chapter 3. You'll find that from verse 7. Let me read this. Page 244. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asherahs. The anger of the Lord burned against Israel so that he sold them into the hands of Cusha Rishathaim, king of Aram Narahaim to whom the Israelites were subject for eight years. But when they cried out to the Lord, he raised up for them a deliverer, Othniel, son of Kenes, Caleb's younger brother, who saved them. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him, so that he became Israel's judge and went to war. The Lord gave Cushan, Rishthaim, 
king of Aram, into the hands of Othniel, who overpowered him. So the land had peace for 40 years until Othniel, son of Canaz, died. So here's this cycle. I wonder if you want to follow it either on the screen uh, or in your handout. Israel turns from the one true God to serve foreign gods. They sin against God. God passes judgment against Israel and allows an enemy to be raised up and defeat them. Israel then kind of cries out to the Lord, repents of their sin, and God responds to their cries by sending them a judge or a ruler. This judge comes, defeats the enemy in the power of God's spirit. Then there's a period of peace in the land, but it never really seems to last very long at all. Then Israel sins again, and the whole cycle is repeated. And that's what we see really going through the whole book. Well, what do we want to say about the judges? Well, actually, God's being really, really kind to the people of Israel. The people are stiff-necked, they're rebellious, they're wayward, they're hard-hearted, but God's still acting in kindness and grace towards them. God is being faithful to his covenant. We see a number of these judges, Othniel in chapter 3, Ehud, it's a great story to tell the kids, Deborah, Gideon, uh, chapter 6 to 9, Zabor, Tola in chapter 10, and many others. And the judges, really, we get a sense from the judges that actually these guys aren't a permanent solution to Israel's problem. Well, why do I say that? Well, because there's occasions when these guys are not the best role models of godly living. Uh, Jephthah, in chapter 11, kills his own daughter. Samson is a womanizing thug. And so I think we miss the point if we try and turn these characters uh, into a hero for a Sunday school lesson uh, for our young people to emulate. The point is this. On the one hand, we praise God for the deliverance that he achieved through them. But on the other hand, it leaves us longing for a better rescuer and judge to come. A greater leader, a greater rescuer who will provide a lasting solution to Israel's problem, which is their sinfulness, and really deliver them finally from all their enemies. Flick forward to the end of the book and we see the, uh, really the root of the problem. Judges 21 and verse 25. It says, in those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as he saw fit. There's the problem. Life in the land is plagued with a constant cycle of disobedience. There's no king. Everyone does evil. There's no covenant representative for the people. There's no one able to keep them in right relationship with Yahweh. What's needed is a ruler to keep the people in the covenant with relationship with God. We need a king. That's who we need. Well, I'm not going to completely ignore the book of Ruth, um, but I'm just going to point you to the very end of the book because it's really helpful in tracing the promised seed. We see that from the last few verses. Uh, it's, it's really a helpful insight into the family line of where King David is going to come from. Uh, he's going to come from Boaz and Ruth uh, and then down to um, uh, Obed, Jesse 
and then David. Let me go to my next slide. So remember our hunt really has been on since Genesis chapter 3. This is really who we're looking for, isn't it? We're looking for the serpent crusher, the one who can sort things out. We know that now information about who he's going to be. We know he's going to come from the seed of the woman. We're getting clues about his identity as we go through the Old Testament. We know he's going to be a covenant representative, one who's going to lead people into ways in which they can keep covenant relationship with the Lord. He might even be a king. Let's um, think about Samuel. In terms of kind of time scale, um, we're somewhere around 1100 BC. There's two big events that happen uh, in uh, 1 and 2 Samuel. The two events are this. The setting up of the monarchy in Israel, establishing the kings. The second is this, the rise of King David to the throne, who who ascends to the throne after Saul. Now, uh, Samuel himself uh, is an interesting character. And whenever you meet someone in the Bible who has an unlikely birth, that's a kind of like a neon sign pointing to this person's going to be quite important. So think Moses, and then ultimately think Jesus. Samuel, uh, his mother was barren, but uh, God gave her a child. Uh, We see that um, in 1 Samuel um, 1 verse 28. And she dedicated her boy Samuel for the Lord's service. And Samuel really is the greatest judge ever for Israel. Uh, He serves God all his life and when he grows old he has two sons uh, who uh, take over for him as judges in his place. There's only one problem with his two sons. Um, They're probably naughtier than me and my two brothers. They're wicked boys and the Israelites get fed up with them. Let's have a look at 1 Samuel chapter 8 and verse 4. Page 278, 1 Samuel 8 and verse 4. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, you're old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. The problem here is not the king, is it? We've already seen back in Deuteronomy, God is going to provide a king. But God's plan had always had this king in mind. The problem is the motivation of the people in asking for the king. Actually, we want a king so we can be just like the other nations. That's really what they're asking for. We want a king, but God, we want you at arm's length. We want to be like everyone else, but we don't want God. But God, in his goodness, kindness, in his mercy, actually provides them with a king. So um, cue cue in uh, King Saul. He rocks up on the scene, and outwardly, he looks stunning. He's tall, dark, and handsome. Uh, Chapter 9, verse 2 tells us that. But inwardly, he's got problems. He's not a king under God's rule. And there's a problem for the Israelites because under his kingship they don't experience blessing. Why? Saul persistently, deliberately disobeys 
God's rule. And God, through Samuel, rebukes Saul. Turn with me to uh, 1 Samuel 15. 1 Samuel 15 and verse 23. We'll just look at the last section of that verse. Page 286. The end of verse 23. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you. And again, verse 28. Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to one of your neighbors, to one better than you. Now, kind of camera one, if you like, zooms out from King, King uh, Saul, and our gaze is diverted to camera two on this neighbor. Who's going to be a better king than Saul? Who's the one to come to turn the reader's attention uh, back towards God? And cue David. In comes David. Um, anointed by Samuel in chapter 16, verse 13. We read there, Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. Samuel then went to Ramah. The Spirit of the Lord is upon God's chosen king. He's been anointed by God. uh, And God's presence is clearly with David. We see this in his incredible victory over Goliath in 1 Samuel 17. David is uh, the covenant representative who single-handedly defeats God's enemy. And yet, there's conflict for this anointed king. The rulers are jealous of him. Now, does that ring any bells in the New Testament? Does anyone come to mind? Rulers being annoyed at the king. Well, hopefully it does, of the Lord Jesus. And Saul forces King David David, into hiding because he's jealous of him. And a long story short, when King King Saul finally dies, uh, David becomes king. At last, God's people, the Israelites, are in Canaan, They're there and they've got their king. They're experiencing God's rule and his blessing through this king. And we can ask the question, is David the serpent crusher? Is he the one we've been waiting for? That's the question we're wanting to have answered. Sadly not. Uh, David uh, commits adultery with Bathsheba, has uh, the husband killed, and uh, David goes into a period of lament. And you can read that in the Psalms. I'm not going to go there. I'm not going to steal Mike's thunder. Yet God declares David to be a man after his own heart. And David seeks to be faithful to God. uh, And God blesses him and the nation uh, under David's rule. And so he sets up in Jerusalem at the temple. uh, And there's there's peace in the land uh, with David. And the ark is now uh, uh, kind of constructed and brought into um, at the temple, the tabernacle. Um, and uh, the ark really represents God's presence with his people. God symbolically dwelt with his people on that um, atonement cover, the mercy seat, that bit underneath the two angels. 
And that's brought into the city, and David rules the people as God's anointed king uh, under God's authority. And it looks really, really good at this point uh, in history. Never before had there been such peace and prosperity in all Israel's history. And the promises on one level are being gloriously worked out and fulfilled. But there's still one who's to come, who's going to be a greater king than King David. Actually, David's pointing beyond himself. Now, does anybody know what this is? Can anyone actually do this? Because I've never been able to do this. Apparently, it's quite a good one. I've got, I've got no idea what it is, um, but the internet said it was good, so that's why I put it on there. I'm sorry if you're driving. You're kind of missing this one out. Uh, you should have been here. Um, so, yeah, this is a magic eye, and kind of you can look at it, and you can think, you know, on one level, it just doesn't look very good. But then on another level, something else is going on in the background. And that's what we get with these covenant promises. At one level, they're being fulfilled with David and the king for them then. But also we see uh, that that the covenant is much bigger uh, and takes on a greater fulfillment through one to come. And the best place for me to show you that is 2 Samuel chapter 7. Has anyone done it yet? Okay, I think, I think Jit might have done it. Would you turn with me to page 311 in your Bibles? Now, I want to say that a couple of really great places in Scripture for you to memorize would be Genesis 12 to Genesis 17, the first covenant, and 2 Samuel chapter 7. They're two parts of the Bible that I think should be very, very close to all of our hearts. Have a little look here with me. Verse, actually, why don't you take three minutes with the person next to you um, and have a little look and see if you can find any mention of people, any mention of place, uh, and any mention of God's blessing with his people. So have a little flick through. And I'm going to ask you to give me the, sorry? You're you're on 2 Samuel 7, page 311. And you're looking at verse 8 down to verse 16. You've got about three or four minutes. People in 2 Samuel 7. Where? Where do we find that? Verse 10. Verse 10? People Israel. Israel. Yes. Absolutely. Um, Any other mention of people? Yeah, okay. The flock? Yeah. Uh, my, my people Israel. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, how about the? Uh, how about Dan and? Sorry. Yes. Yes. There's going to be a great. There's going to be a great name, isn't there, for this for this people? Yeah. Um, okay. What about a place? Is there any mention of a place in two Samuel seven? Verse ten. Yeah, God will provide a place for my people. Yes. Anywhere else? They're going to have a home of their own. Fantastic. Okay, any mention of blessing? There's going to be rest from God's enemies. Where do we find that? Verse 11 and verse 9. Yeah. There's going to be an end to oppression. Absolutely, verse 10. Yeah. Yeah, in verse 10, there's going to be a place. And we see as well down in verse 13, 
um, there's going to be uh, a kingdom and a throne that's going to be eternal. Do we see that? There's God's blessing there. We also see in verse 14 that God will be the father and there will be a son. Isn't that incredible? And then down in verse 16, uh, your house and kingdom shall endure forever and ever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. There's going to be a people, there's going to be a place, and there's going to be blessing. 2 Samuel 7 is a very important chapter indeed of the Bible. So we see the promise now being zoomed in on even further. Remember, we're looking for one from Eve's line who's going to do battle with a serpent. He's going to be a ruler. And now we know he's going to come from David's line. He's going to have an eternal throne, verse 13 and verse 16. And verse 14, God himself will be his father. He's going to be the great king's greater son, the true son of David and the son of God. So from 2 Samuel 7 and onwards, we're looking now, we're waiting for the arrival of God's king, the son of David, the anointed one or Messiah in Hebrew. The Greek uh, has it as Christos, the Christ who's to come. And so now really, as we move through from 1 Kings um, uh, 1 to 1 Kings 11, David is the one, uh, so We now move to David's successor, his immediate successor on the throne. And that's King Solomon, who's a wise king and he rules well. And the kingdom of Israel flourishes, flourishes under his rule. Have a look at 1 Kings uh, chapter 3 uh, with me. 1 Kings 3 um, and verse 5. Uh, King Solomon uh, is uh, the king who's ruling. And in verse 5, God's God's, uh, said to him in a dream, uh, ask for whatever you want me to give to you. Solomon answered, you've shown great kindness to your servant, my father David, because he was faithful to you, righteous and upright in heart. You've continued this great kindness to him and given him a son to sit on his throne to this very day. Now, O Lord, my God, you have made your servant king in place of my father David but I'm only a little child and I do not know how to carry out my duties your servant is here among the people among the people you've chosen a great people too numerous to count so give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people and to distinguish between right and wrong for who is able to govern this great people of yours verse 12 I will do what you have asked I will give you a wise and discerning heart so that there will never have been anyone like you, nor will there ever be. Moreover, I'll give you what you've not asked for, both riches and honor, so that in your lifetime you'll have no equal among kings. And if you walk in my ways and obey my statutes and commands as David your father did, I'll give you a long life. Then Solomon woke up from his dream. Amazingly, uh, King Solomon built the incredible temple under his reign. Now there's a permanent dwelling place for God in the city among his people. Key Louis Armstrong back in. And this really is the high point of the kingdom. We've seen uh, creation uh, far left down to the fall. We're now kind of working our way up. We've been worked through the Exodus, the law, the promised land they've entered. Now we've got the kings. We're at the high point of the Old Testament. And it looks incredible. 
The, the temple itself is dedicated uh, to the Lord in 1 Kings chapter 8 and verse 56. Uh, and we read this, page 347. Praise be to the Lord who's given rest to his people Israel just as he promised. Not one word has failed. All the good promises he gave through his servant Moses. It looks great. God's people are in God's place. They're experiencing God's rule and blessing. Uh, the ark's in the temple. The king's on the throne. Uh, they're enjoying rest from their enemies. It looks great. Then we have the queen of Sheba who comes in 1 Kings chapter 10. Really, she's a representative of the nations coming towards God's king. She praises the king for his wisdom and his prosperity. You can read that in your own time at 1 Kings 10 verse 1 to 13. Even the nations can now come in from outside and experience blessing from the king of Israel. And that should remind us of God's covenant promises back in Genesis chapter 12. All peoples will be blessed through you. Everything looks rosy, but it's not going to last. Why? Well, because Solomon accumulated much gold and much silver, took many horses and many wives, and he began to worship many false gods. Flick over the page, 1 Kings 11 and verse 3. He had 700 wives of royal births and 300 concubines and his wives led him astray. Okay, no joke, right? I mean, imagine the kind of Marks and Spencers trips. It would just be a nightmare, wouldn't it? Or kind of a trip shopping to the local supermarket. Crazy. Um, his, his wives led him astray. Verse 6, Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Oh no, he did not follow the Lord completely as David, his father, had done. From then onwards, now we have this kind of downward trajectory, really, where the kingdom of Israel is in decline. Everything goes Pete Tong. There's the odd good king thrown in the mix here and there, but it all goes wrong. Uh, let's go to our next slide. Rehoboam uh, uh, succeeds uh, uh, as uh, king. Over, uh, uh, he's, he's the next king after Solomon. But there's a revolt in the camp and Jeroboam, son of Nebat, um, and the majority of Israel actually, 10 other tribes, follow him as king. And they set up in rivalry uh, against um, the southern kingdom. And then we have this kind of tragedy where, where obviously the kingdom is split in 922 uh, BC. We've got the northern kingdom of Israel. There's 10 tribes up there under Jeroboam. And there's two tribes down south uh, with King Rehoboam. The ten tribes in the north are uh, called Israel, and the two in the south are called Judah. And Jerusalem is her capital. The uh, decline in the north is apparent pretty quickly. Uh, Jeroboam is concerned that the people are going to want to go back down south to Jerusalem to worship God. So foolishly, he sets up shrines at Bethel and Dan and puts a golden calf in each one. What do you expect is going to happen? What's going to happen? I wonder if I've got time to tell you this story. I'm going to tell you. There is a, there is a I'm going to tell you now because it's a funny story. It's the, this is a true story. There is a guy in America uh, this, is the, this is true, believe it or not 41 years old and he's, he, he's a real lad's lad. 
His name's Kerry Bingham. And one night, he's down the pub with his mates, and they've been drinking heavily all night. And one of the guys had been out, and he'd done a bungee jump off the Tacoma Narrow Bridge. There's the bridge. And, and, and he'd done a bungee jump off the top on the left-hand side down, and it looks like you're going to land in the traffic when you do a bungee jump off this. Don't do it. Wait till the new creation. If you're ever going to do a bungee jump, kind of wait until you've got your resurrection body. That's my advice. But anyway, he, he kind of jumped off the top between the two kind of lanes of traffic and then sprang back up. And Kerry Bingham said, I'd do that. And then kind of his mate said, go on then. So at half past four in the morning, Kerry Bingham, 10 of his mates, went down to the Tacoma Narrow Bridge, managed to get up there, I don't know how, at 4.30 in the morning, and, he, and, and someone said, well, where's the bungee cord? No one had bought a bungee cord. So um, the, there was this lineman's cable that they found on the bridge, and Kerry Bingham tied one end to his foot, actually his leg, and the other end to the side of the bridge. And kind of, I, I just kind of, what do you think is going to happen, Kerry? You know, as he walked to the edge of the bridge, you know, was he really going to go through with this? What, what do you think is going to happen when you do something as stupid uh, as this? Well, he, um, he did, he jumped off. 40 foot down, 40 foot down, the line pulled tight and snapped his foot clean off his leg and he fell straight down into the icy water beneath. Kerry Bingham survived. It's crazy, but they never found his foot. My point is this. When you do something as stupid as that, uh, as kind of setting up two golden calves in the northern tribe to bow down and worship, what do you expect is going to happen? God's going to come, and he's going to come in judgment, uh, and, it, and it isn't going to work out very well at all. Alarm bells are clearly ringing. 1 Kings 12 Verse 28. After seeking advice, the king made two golden calves. He said to the people, It's too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Here are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. One he set up in Bethel, and the other he set up in Dan. Very, very silly thing to do. And it's only a matter of time before judgment comes. Idolatry, you see, is a problem that's right at our hearts. Not just their hearts, but at our hearts as well. It's Israel's besetting sin, and it can be ours uh, as well. Arguably, the main problem in Genesis chapter 3 was idolatry, and that's what led them into the fall. Perhaps you can pick me up on that in uh, Q&A. Why is it idolatry? People saying, we want to be our own God. We want to decide for ourselves. Our next slide. Uh, let's go back. So in 722 BC, 200 years after the division of the kingdom, uh, the Assyrians attacked the north, and the north's completely wiped out, totally kind of destroyed. And um, there's, there's, there's no doubt as to why that happens. The uh, northern kingdom never have a separate uh, existence again. They, uh, their, their descendants are the Samaritans, who were despised by the Jews in Jesus' time, if you remember them. Then the southern kingdom has a name change, just to make it even more confusing, and it goes back to being called Israel. So we've now got Israel back in the south. So when you read through the prophets, you'll notice that uh, Judah is now referred to uh, as Israel. So there's a constant decline, um, spelled out in two kings and two chronicles, uh, and uh, even though the southern kingdom have got God's 
presence there uh, with his temple uh, and God's rule, the people turned to false gods uh, and to idolatry. Uh, And there's periods of time, actually, when you read through uh, 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles, when there is the odd good king, like Josiah, um, and um, 2 Kings uh, 23 and 2 Chronicles 34 for your notes. But the changes that they make don't really go deep enough or far enough to avert God's anger. The people uh, break the covenant and have to be punished and go into exile. In 597 BC, uh, God raises up the Babylonians to act in judgment on the southern kingdom. There's three sieges. The most influential are taken first, then the next kind of people are taken, and then thirdly, um, the rest. In 586 BC, the temple in Jerusalem is laid waste, and uh, the rest of the people are then carted off into exile. I'm sorry that I've kind of downloaded on you really quickly there. Uh, Hopefully you can re-listen to the tape. Some of it is in the handouts. Um, so, uh, God's people are now in exile. God's place is now in ruins. Uh, God's blessing, where do we see that? Actually, they're under God's wrath and they're experiencing God's curse, um, which is tragic. No wonder Psalm 137 verse 1, uh, they kind of sing this. By the rivers of Babylon, we sat and wept as we remembered Zion. See, what we see here at the collapse of the kingdom is the fall in Eden all over again. Now, the history of Israel is a bit like Harry the helicopter, okay? It's a model. It's a model of the reality that we find in the New Testament. It's a model that pointed forward to something far bigger and far superior, and we have hints all the way through the Old Testament that it's not the real deal, that something bigger is coming. It's the model aeroplane. It was glorious, the kind of kingdom in the Old Testament, but it pointed beyond itself like the magic eye picture to the Lord Jesus. There, God gives a greater rescue, not just a rescue from Pharaoh, a physical slave master, but the rescue over the slavery of sin, which Jesus achieved at the cross. He set us free to worship a greater master. Isn't that incredible? A better master, the Lord Jesus. The Old Testament was wonderful. It was great. God in their midst, in the tabernacle, at the temple. But it was just a shadow of the Lord Jesus Christ, who'd be God with us, the Emmanuel, who tabernacled amongst us, 1 John, sorry, John 1, 14. David and Solomon were wise kings, yes, and great kings, but the Lord Jesus would be the greater king, the servant king, who'd lay down his life for his friends. Now the model is rejected, and the covenant promises will never be forgotten. God dismantled the model, but that's not the end. The model was rebuilt. The model was never rebuilt. But the real thing, the real thing that the model pointed forward to comes in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. More on that later. Now we have the prophetic hope to come. Let's stop there and have coffee. Thank you very much.